All right, so 37 days, 37 days and counting. I thought we'd do to start here today a little bit of inventory. One word, please no editorializing from your seats. One word, where are you at with the election here? Just over a month or so to go. Where are you at? What are your feelings? Say? One word, one word. One at a time, one word. Say it again. Dismayed. Ugh. Please. That's not please more. That's please. All right. Ah. Ah. <laughs> Over here. Exhausted. Empowered. Okay. We're at where we're at. Anyone else? Enough. Flabbergasted. Saddened. Over here. Sad. Challenge. Worried. Scared. Well, you all are kind of like what 930 was like. Interesting to see that. Uh, To which I can also say everything that you said. Yes. That's kind of how I'm feeling as well, too. Chris shared a story about Homeboy Industries, talking about, you know, how do we take the off-ramp from despair towards hope? I've had to be really intentional about that for the last few months within my own life when I look at kind of our political discourse and where we are and the fact that whatever happens in 37 days, we're still going to be dealing with this stuff. And so I want to share with you one of my intentional sources that I have reached out for and to for hope and a sense of hopefulness about kind of our American experiment here. And it's this. Hamilton, an American musical. No, I've not seen it because I've not had three or four thousand dollars laying around to be able to go see it. But in our household, it has been a regular part of our soundtrack over the last few months. Hamilton, which is a multiracial, multi-ethnic reimagining of the story and the life of founding father Alexander Hamilton, that ends as his life ended with his being shot by Aaron Burr in a duel. And here's the really amazing thing. Actually, there's a lot of amazing things about Hamilton, an American musical is that when it ends, it ends with the question, the fact that the story isn't really over at all. If you know the soundtrack, it ends with this, a question in the form of a song. Who lives, who dies, who tells your story? Who lives, who dies, who tells your story? Because in this imaginative retelling and re-envisioning of the life of what it was at the founding of our republic, is also an ongoing question that's not about the past, that's about time to come. It's a challenge. It's an invitation. In the ongoing formation and reformation of what America means to us and what it can mean to us, whose stories matter, whose stories are told, whose stories are left out, and whose stories can we lift up? This question, who lives, who dies, who tells your story, reminds me of uh, one of my favorite TED Talks. And it's one of the things we worked with uh, for the group before we went to Haiti this past January. And it's also showed up in my schooling this 
uh, September so far in this first month that I've been doing the Master of Social Work program at Westchester. And it's from this person, Chimananda Adichie. She is a Nigerian novelist, and the name of the TED Talk is The Danger of a Single Story. And these are some of her words. She says, the single story creates stereotypes, and the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete. They make one story become the only story. Now, she experiences this a lot in her life when she travels to the West, to uh, the UK, to America to give talks and to teach. And she says that so often, uh, well, people do one thing, especially uh, a lot of white Westerners, which is that they refer to Africa as a country, right? We all know that. A continent, not a country. She is from Nigeria, the country. Uh, sometimes she'll be taken into people's homes and offered hospitality. And people will be surprised when they show her their stove. And it's not the first stove she's ever seen in her entire life. She's from a middle class family in Nigeria. Her parents are a professor and a civil servant. She tells this one particular story that really gets at the heart of, of the problem, of the problem with assuming a single story and the danger of a single story. She said that once she was offering a, a lecture at an American university and one of the students raised their hand, kind of a sad look on their face. And, and this young man said, it's, it's such a shame that, that all Nigerian men were physical abusers like the father character in her novel that she had recently written. Now, instead of taking the bait in that situation, she actually took a breath and a pause, and she came up with an awesome comeback. She said, I have recently finished reading the novel American Psycho. (laughs) And she says, it is a shame that so many young Americans are serial killers. <laughs> you get the point. And the person asking the question got the point. That's the rub right here and especially right now in our country. For yes, the next 37 days and for the months that have preceded it, but even more for the time after the election. Because we're still going to be dealing with all the same dynamics. It's still going to be here with us. The faces and the names may change, but the dynamics are going to stay with us. We're going to cling to a single story or the hope that some peddle to us of a single story of what America meant. If only could go back to a simpler time, whatever the hell that means. It wasn't that way. Or are we going to take this opportunity, this time, to enlarge our moral imaginations and the stories that we tell about this country and its people? Because, yeah, there is an awful lot of peril, and all you got to do is be on Facebook for about five minutes a day right now, and you will see the peril. But also, I believe this is a time of great promise in the life of our country, that there are many who are speaking up and speaking more loudly than they ever have before, that this is a moment for adaptation. This is a moment to practice resilience. This is a moment to enlarge our moral imagination. This is a moment in which our culture can change and grow. It's an opportunity for maturity and maturing. Whether we take it or not, I have no idea. I hope we do. And recently, i got to tell you, I heard two sources, two names, 
two people who I don't normally associate with being part of enlarging the moral imagination of our country. And by the way, that just reveals how limited my own story can be about who participates in that project. First one is George W. Bush, past president, simply put, not a fan. And, and, he was there at the opening this past week of the African American Museum, which, by the way, he signed into law funding that 13 years ago. And W shared this quote about what the museum means to him. It shows our commitment to truth. A great nation does not hide its history. It places its flaws and corrects them. This museum tells the truth that a country founded on the promise of liberty held millions in chains. That the price of our union was America's original sin. And then he goes on, by the way, to say that work is not just about the past. That work is still ongoing. So, you know, that helped to enlarge my own limited story. And the second thing, and in some ways this was more incredible, and this has been sent to me by a couple people in the congregation, and I've seen it in social media. The CEO of AT&T, like a Fortune 10 company, not thought of as one of the most uh, progressive forces in our world, spoke to thousands of his employees this past week, speaking about why it is so necessary to actually say and claim that black lives matter. Because while saying at the same time that black lives matter, it doesn't mean that other people's lives don't matter. He says, you know, when there's a breast cancer walk, we say only breast cancer matters and all the other cancers, we can forget about them. This is a CEO of a huge company claiming the space and the right and the necessity of saying black lives matter. He's pointing at the fact that we know more, especially if you're a person like me, a person of multiple privileges. Maybe we're learning some things right now or have been the last few years that we weren't taught in school or that our parents didn't tell us and our cultures didn't tell us. And, you know, there's a tendency at any of those moments to want to shut down. There's a tendency in those moments to deny reality as it is, to deny the many stories that have not been told. But that's why this is a moment of such promise at the time. It's a moment of such peril because there is that tendency to devolve to the idea of a simpler story. And there is that potential to enlarge the story and not just to enlarge the story, but to enlarge our hearts. The reason I'm preaching this message beyond the fact that is just 37 days away from this at times unbelievable election is that. This is an opportunity to renew, to renew a sense of our democracy and our sense of being citizens within that democracy. And it also rests on something that a friend shared with me many, many years ago, a friend who, for obvious reasons, I'm not going to tell you their identity, but a friend who was just about to get married and the marriage almost didn't get out of the starting blocks because the marriage that was coming to be, also had to wrestle with an infidelity in its midst. And there was heartbreak. And there was a sense that, you know what, maybe there's no way to renew this. And my friend said these words that have always stuck with me. And next week when I talk about forgiveness, the other F word, in some ways the more controversial F word in our society, 
My friend said, we're not who we once thought we were. And I really want to know who we'll become. That's a question that at least plant a seed, plants a seed of renewal. We're not who we thought we once were. And I want to know who we'll become. Well, turned out well for my friend. And I think it's true for families and countries. And anyone who has reached that point in which the old stories no longer work and chooses openness to the stories that may come to be that will give new life. So one of the other sources that I've been using to kind of seed my own hopeful heart this season is something I don't do very often. I've been reading the Hebrew scriptures recently. I grew up Jewish. I grew up the kind of Judaism where I had to go to Christian seminary and leave Judaism to actually understand what was in the Hebrew scriptures. But here's the really cool thing about reading the Hebrew scriptures. It is not one single story at all. Anyone who ever wants to tell you, okay, the Christian scriptures, that's the God of love and the uh, Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. By the way, it's not old to Jewish people, okay? That's kind of offensive when people say that. It's a story of the vengeful God. No, (laughs) there's vengeful stuff in the Hebrew scriptures and there's vengeful stuff in the Christian scriptures and there's vengeful stuff in the Islamic scriptures, and there are loving words in the Islamic scriptures, and there are loving words in the Hebrew scriptures, and there are loving words in the Christian scriptures. It's which scriptures do we set our hearts upon. That's what matters, because these scriptures are built by human beings, and so they reflect our hearts. The really cool thing about reading the Hebrew scriptures is that it is a series of a telling of the relationship between ancient Israel And the God of their understanding, a series of covenants, a series of promises that they make to each other over and over and over again. And here's the interesting thing about the ancient Israelites. They screw up every single covenant they're given. (laughs) They get it wrong. But their experience of their relationship with the God of their understanding is that the covenant is renewed and reframed and refreshed with each successive time of failure. Fail again, love again, begin again, fail again. Do it better the next time. The other beautiful thing about that process in the Hebrew Scriptures is that it starts, and this is kind of what I knew, this is the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments law. You know, Ten Commandments, you know, if you know the Mel Brooks version, it's 15, oops, Ten Commandments. People got that in 9.32. I wasn't sure if that joke was going to go. People got that. Thank you for still getting Mel Brooks jokes, by the way. If you haven't seen it, History of the World, part one. Enough said. Part two? Part two. Thank you. All right, we'll talk about that afterward. But it starts in the law. It starts in thou shalt not. Thou shall, thou shalt not. But the ancient Israelites don't do so well in that way of relating to the God of their understanding of each other. And so with each successive covenant, it moves further and further away from the outer person, from the law, from constricting that way of being, and moves further and closer and closer towards the heart. It moves towards a simple word. Right there, I've got it inked on my left forearm. 
chesed. Chesed. It means eternal loving kindness. If you want to read a story of adaptation and maturity and people who are getting it wrong all the time, read the Hebrew Scriptures. I think they can provide us some guidance for where we are right now. One of the things I love about this renewing of the covenant in the Hebrew Scriptures is that, and this is going to be a wild paraphrase. Please don't go looking for this. This is a wild paraphrase of something said in one of the prophets. I think it's Isaiah. In which their understanding of God says to them, it used to be the case that I'd punish the kids for the sins of the parents. And by the way, I don't think the ancient Israelites are saying that's a good thing. God should have done that. I think they're just saying with awareness something that we all can see, right? The past gets handed down sometimes painfully from generation to generation, unless we are really clear about changing our ways. That descriptive, not normatively, descriptively, pain gets passed on. And so one of these recovenant and renewing moments with the ancient Israelites saying, you know what, we want to recognize that past and break from it and open to something new. This is really similar in some ways to what the Catholic contemplative Richard Rohr, one of my favorite teachers, said, we either, we either transform our pain change our lineage or we just end up transmitting it this is what it means to renew it's what it would mean for our country to renew to not just perpetuate the old cycles and old ways it means to be able to say the covenant is dead long live the covenant The promises that maybe we once lived by don't work as well as we used to or as we thought they used to. So let's try some new and better promises together. Enlarge the story. Know more stories. Share more stories. And grow. This is the single greatest promise, by the way, of this spiritual tradition. Our progressive Unitarian Universalist tradition, which does not have a dogma. We have teachings, we have traditions, we share them, they animate the core of Wellsprings, but we don't have a dogma. But here's the thing about dogma, here's the little secret. It's not something other people have. Because the foundation of spiritual dogma is emotional dogma. And myself included, I have met just as many progressive people over the, over the course of my life who have dogmas just as much as the conservative or the reactionary folks do. Dogma says this life is fixed and final and the form doesn't change. All spiritual dogma begins as emotional dogma in churches and traditions and family systems and in countries. The recognition of that is the invitation to renew and to build a new and different story. And so I want to share with you something that I read recently. Don't put it up quite yet because it it riffs off of something that you may have seen in social media or maybe you've read over the years. It's this quote that Tolstoy did not say, you know, in which he said, "All, uh, all happy families are the same. All unhappy families are unhappy in all different ways, which one, again, Tolstoy didn't say it. And two, it's a total lie. It's a lie because of this. This is from a woman named Roberta Green. And I was reading this for my MSW program. And I just love it. 
She said, families characteristically lack a time perspective when they are having problems. They tend to magnify the present moment, overwhelmed and immobilized by their immediate feelings, or they become fixed on a moment in the past or the future that they dread or long for. They lose the awareness that life always means motion from the past into the future with the continual transformation of familial relationships. As the sense of motion becomes lost or distorted, therapy involves restoring a sense of life as process and movement both from and toward. When I read this, I was like, damn, I'm in the right place. I'm doing the right thing. Because this is like one of those places where it's like confluence between contemplative spirituality and keeping faith with the movement of life. Roberta Green is her name, by the way. An awareness of how systems work and how families work or sometimes don't. And the place where all those converge is such a sweet spot for me right now. Keeping faith with the movement of life. This is the great promise of our tradition. We call it the burning bushes blazing everywhere. We say that streams, streams of faith are what we can experience. That there are many paths paved with grace and wisdom upon which to explore our faith. And they all lead us back to that same ocean. This is why our tradition is not one bound by dogma, but by covenant, which is just a fancy old word for making promises. How we make promises to be there for each other matters the utmost in this tradition. It matters the utmost in our families. It matters the utmost in this country as well, too. Because sometimes when the covenant has ended and we don't know if there's a new covenant that will come along, we can find ourselves, and I know I found myself in this place in my life before, having that old addictive tendency to want to control The covenant is better than control because the world will always be bigger than our capacity to control. Definitionally bigger. It's one of the reasons that our tradition is not founded on a dogma, but upon this great promise that we can grow from the good seed with which we were born and cultivate a robust spiritual character, showing itself in love, justice, compassion, and mercy. Because the thing is, when we're facing the unknown, it is so easy to think that, you know what? Fearfully. We can get it all figured out. We can get this locked down. And maybe we do for a moment. And that moment feels so real. And we can, some of us, spend the rest of our lives wondering, why can't we get back to that moment in which we had it all locked down? But if we're honest, we know, right? That the unknown is such a larger portion of our world than the known will ever be. This is true in an evolving world. How we meet that, how we face that, again in the next 37 days or whenever, is so predictive of our capacity to grow and to thrive. This is why people who teach me about the practice of enlarging their story are people who I want to pay attention to. And I'll share one with you right now. It's a professor at UC Berkeley. Y'all know UC Berkeley? Okay, you get the sense, like UC Berkeley, she's a sociology professor at UC Berkeley. She's kind of on the left wing of American politics, right? Professor of sociology at UC Berkeley. She wrote a book recently that is about her five-year-long interactions with people in the bayou in Louisiana, which is to say the reddest part of a very red state. I just love her name. It is is so perfect if you have a stereotype of her. Arlie Russell Hosschild. (laughs) You know, again, when you're thinking of what is a liberal professor at UC Berkeley, what are her name? A Hosschild. But here's the thing. 
when she first had the inclination to write this book. It's called Strangers in Their Own Land. She said, I realized there were two ways I could go about it. I could go in and say, I'm going to find out more about the enemy. I'll grab the facts and I'll marshal my side. Or I could say, you know what? There are things I just don't know about this part of the country. And I'm going to have to open my heart to them. I'm going to have to turn my alarm system off and actually listen. Listen with curiosity and listen with interest. 37 days from now, the election will be over. And our curiosity will still make all the difference in the world. Because Professor Hoschild, she didn't come out of that five-year experience talking to people in the reddest part of a really red state changed. Saying, oh yeah, they're right. I'm going to join their side. No, she was just as convinced of what she believed. But her heart had changed. And her heart had opened. And they were no longer as much a them to her. Now, it can take an awful lot of energy to hold those contradictory feelings and thoughts in our heads, right? But that's why the capacity to not believe a single story is so liberating. And I know I have enough challenges trying to hold contradictory facts, stories, experiences in my head. And so this is where I turn to an authority much greater than myself who has guided Americans for much longer than just this election and will continue to guide Americans for many years henceforth, I hope. Walt Whitman gave us our mission here at Wellsprings. Posing a question to himself, but I believe to all of us, he said, do I contradict myself? Yes. Very well then, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. Above all else, I believe this is a time for containing multitudes. About recognizing that your experience, my experience, just in this room, let alone the rest of the world, it's not identical. And still there is so much we can learn from each other. You know, everyone loves to quote the second inaugural address from Lincoln after the Civil War. I love the first one in which he says, we are not enemies, we are friends. We are not enemies, we are friends. Our experience is not identical. And yet, the absolute truth of life as it has always been and the absolute truth right now and as it will be is that we're not identical. But our experience is absolutely interdependent with one another. And so from that place of recognizing beyond the identical and into the interdependent, we can continue to create this world together. We can continue to enlarge the stories we tell. We can continue to become friends. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? Renewing spirit here, present in our lungs, all around us, between us. Renewing spirit, breathing you in and breathing you out. We remember that all of life exists with all of life. Breathing you in and breathing you out, perhaps we can remind ourselves or at least see the limitations of the single stories we sometimes believe and cling to out of fear, out of a desire to be safe. 
and recognize it's okay, that tendency, and still allow ourselves to go further, enlarging the heart, enlarging our chesed, enlarging our loving kindness, and building the kind of world so many of us dream of. Amen.